Amen. We are going to revisit the, the last two verses from that scripture reading at the end of our time today to sort of wrap all of this up. Be reconciled to God, Paul says. But for now, as was made clear in our conversation last week, the Lenten, and really the last two weeks, I guess, the Lenten season can be a time of discomfort. It can be a time of discomfort, both mentally and really physically, with some of the various practices we engage in during this season. And I think that is a good thing for us. So maybe you, during this season, are fasting something that is perfectly acceptable, a good and pleasing pleasure, or maybe you have decided to give up something destructive, a habit that is destructive uh, that, that you have been clinging to, or maybe you decided to take a more positive approach and you have taken up a new habit or a spiritual discipline. Whatever the case might be, all of those endeavors, I think, produce a certain amount of discomfort. So there's that physical discomfort, but there is also some mental discomfort that we might deal with during this season. When we started this season, Journey to the Cross, I said that some of the conversations we would have would be uncomfortable. And that's to be expected, I think. We are talking about a horrific form of execution. We talked about this in detail the past couple of weeks, looking at the idea of blood sacrifice, looking at the shame of the cross. Today we are going to continue that trend. We're going to continue developing this conversation by dealing with some themes that are closely connected to the cross that aren't necessarily fun conversations, but they are important. So we're going to get after this. So today we are going to be talking about human sin in relation to the righteousness of God. We're also going to deal with the biblical concept of wrath and what that means, healthy ways of understanding the idea of wrath as it relates to the crucifixion. Because there does seem to be a connection between the shameful cross of Jesus on one hand and the problem of human sin. So in speaking of what the cross accomplishes, the language that is often used is, well, Jesus died for our sins. Jesus died for our sins, right? And so the next couple of weeks, we're going to be exploring what exactly it means that Jesus has died for our sins. You know, the well-known hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, has that line, it was my sin that held him there. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. The next couple of weeks, we will consider what exactly is accomplished in the cross, but at this point, the question is, why is the cross necessary? I guess first, is the cross necessary? And the follow-up question to that, why? Before we can get at what the cross accomplishes, we first have to understand, as the hymn says, the sin that held him there. Human sin. Now, admittedly, this is not something we like to think about or talk about in this day and age. This can be a conversation that is off limits, but human sin has been inextricably linked to the crucifixion of Jesus since the beginning of the church. It's the idea that in view of human sin and evil, something needs to be done about sin. Not necessarily punishment, but something needs to happen so that our relationship with the holy God can be restored. And this is not just something that the Bible teaches us, but I think 
in our own experiences. We also feel this at a deep level when we come into contact with unmitigated evil. I mean, we could think of just some of the fairly recent horrific acts throughout the past century or so where millions and millions of people have been executed in dozens of genocides just in the 20th century alone. The reality of sin. It is impossible to avoid the reality of unmitigated evil when we consider some of those genocides. We could think of Armenia or Cambodia or Bangladesh, or Rwanda, and the list just continues to grow. We could think of the Holocaust, or we can even get much more recent and think about some of the evils that have happened in the past couple of decades. We could think of 9-11, or we could think of some of the atrocities that our nation has engaged in, some of the evil that our nation has been guilty of committing. Or maybe you would think of the Soviet labor camps, under Lenin and Stalin, whatever the case might be. Th those, and those are just some of the massive, some of the global um, expressions of evil, terror, and dehumanization. We could probably all also think of some much more specific evils, some things that we have come into contact with in a very real way that we have felt personally. And when we come into contact in evil in those ways, there is this overwhelming sense that rises within us that something needs to be done. Not necessarily punishment. Again, I don't think this is where the conversation is leading us, but something needs to be done to bring restoration because of all of this evil. Now, unfortunately, I think sin as a reality becomes very difficult for us to deal with and think about because there is this overwhelming, pervasive cultural assumption of personal innocence. Yes, I know evil exists, and it's out there. I see it. I've come into contact with it. Maybe even I've personally experienced it. I know it's a reality. I understand that um, positive Positivism is irresponsible and naive, but it's not me who's evil. It's not in here. It's out there. It's, it's them. So we become rather sentimental. We, we become confident in our own morality, in our own intrinsic goodness, while recounting in incredible detail the evil of others. But as theologian Fleming Rutledge said in her great work on the crucifixion, and by the way, if you haven't noticed by this point in the series, we are referring to this work. It's called The Crucifixion by Fleming Rutledge. We've referred to it a lot. It has sort of been the primary resource that we have worked through in planning for this series, and it is a masterpiece. Um, but she said in that book, sin is only understood in relation to God, not in comparison to others. And I think if we fail to understand this fundamental reality of sin, we will become self-righteous and judgmental. We will never seek to come to terms with our own sin by responding in repentance. And that's what this season is all about. The season of Lent is about turning the microscope in on ourselves and diving deep into this time of introspection. But if sin is only understood 
in relation to other people. I can always find somebody who is worse than me in any given category. And thus, at least mentally, I can exonerate myself. Well, I struggle with this, sure, but look at that person. They do way more bad things than, than I do. And so we're willing to face and to think about sin all day long if it's somebody else's sin. But the season of Lent calls us to look at the sin in our own hearts. And that's where the real struggle between righteousness and evil is. As Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously said in his massive work, The Gulag Archipelago, which I am crawling through at a snail's pace, but he famously said this, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. It's not out there. It's not them. We are all implicated in this. From the most righteous among us to the one with no interest in a moral life at all. But the condition of sin is not understood unless we are oriented toward God. As theologian Karl Barth said, the reality of sin cannot be known or described except in relation to the one who has vanquished it. The one who has vanquished it. So this is the conversation I want us to have this morning. Be thinking about human sin in light of the righteousness of God and then how the concept of wrath ties into that and what healthy ways of viewing wrath might be. So we'll return to the psalm that we started with this morning in our call to worship. Our call to worship was from Psalm 4, and you may remember that verse 3 of that psalm said this, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, without understanding the context or the overall movement of our scripture, we can read or hear a verse like that and assume, well, the better we are, the more moral we act, the, the less we do these bad things, the more God likes us, the more pleasing we are to God. He sets us aside for himself. He sets us aside for blessings and for other good things, but those terrible sinners over there, God sets aside for destruction. Now, we can read our Bible and reach a conclusion like that, but I don't think we can read the entirety of our scriptures and reach a conclusion like that. But because we find an idea that gives balance to this thought from Psalm 4, we, we even see Paul come along in Romans chapter 3. And Romans 3 is where we're going to be camping out this morning. But in Romans 3, Paul comes along and he's developing this argument in the first part of, of the book of Romans uh, of what the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does for the human race in light of our sinful condition. And in Romans 3, we find the idea, well, yes, God sets apart the godly for himself, but we also see places in the Psalms. So the same collection of texts which provide a seemingly contradictory statement. And Paul brings this to our minds in Romans 3, where he quotes Psalm 14, saying this, None is righteous, no, not one. So God sets apart the godly for himself. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, Paul expounds upon this idea if you follow his argument throughout chapter 3, especially in verses 21 and 22, but also back in verse 9 of the same chapter where he's arguing that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. So the, the Jewish people were given the law, which was intended to keep them close to the heart of God, to keep them oriented towards the things that are godly, to keep them set apart, but Ultimately, not even the law could do that. Paul says there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, even though the Jewish people had the law. There's no difference when it comes to the issue of human sin. When it comes to human sin, there is no difference between you and the one whose sin is so obvious and damnable to you. There is no difference between me and the one whose sin I simply can't stomach. Why? As Paul goes on in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This puts us all, each member of the human race, on a level playing field when it comes to the sin that plagues our hearts. None of us are exempt. None are untouched or unaffected by sin. Therefore, if we decry the sin of another, that really is a dangerous affair because we are necessarily implicated in any conversation about human sin. It is a universal part of the human condition. Now, in this conversation, I'm not interested in trying to sum this all up with phrases like total depravity. I think A phrase like total depravity carries a lot of baggage, and a lot of times I think it brings along this assumption that, well, if we are, as humans, truly, totally deprived, then we must have been created in, and we must have been created for sin. If our depravity supersedes everything, if it is more fundamental than the blessing of creation, then we must have been created in and for sin. But the blessing of creation is more fundamental than any notion of sin. What We are not created in sin, but we have been fractured by sin. This is what Paul is arguing if you follow his thought in Romans chapter 5, where he brings up this connection between Adam from the story of Genesis and Christ. Adam is sort of this representative figure from Genesis and So when we think about what Paul is saying throughout Romans in relation to the fall of humanity, the point of the discussion, at least in my view, is not to determine precisely how we might be guilty of sin from birth. I mean, is an infant really guilty of sin in any way that is intelligible? I don't think that's the point Paul is trying to make here. Rather, What he sets forth throughout Romans 3 is simply the notion of human solidarity when it comes to bondage to sin. It's inescapable. It is inevitable. We enter the world in some sense in bondage to sin. It's not something that we can avoid. Even though we are created as image bearers of God, Even though God sees the creation of humanity and says that it is living in a world that is in bondage to the powers of sin and evil. 
the powers of sin and evil. Now, I get that that terminology, the powers of sin and evil, that might sound a bit too apocalyptic for some, individual bad things that we do. Sure, actions that go against the purposes and plans of God are, in fact, sinful, but the problem of sin, as described throughout the Bible, is much more insidious. It's much more devastating. It's much more all-encompassing than just a bad choice that I happen to make on any given day. The, The biblical notion of sin is that it is a power. It's not just immoral behavior, as Paul says in this chapter. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, he says, sin is something we are under. Something we are under, not just something we do. Now, obviously, this is coming from a worldview that is very different than ours in the 21st century. But if we look back to what some of the information we started with this morning, as we think about the millions and millions of people just in 100 years killed in various genocides around our globe, it is not difficult then to concede, well, maybe sin is more than just a few isolated bad actions or a few isolated bad decisions. I mean, does an isolated bad decision lead to the extermination of millions of people? I think it's difficult to reach that conclusion. There there is a sinister power at work. Pastor Rich Velotis put it this way. He said, sin is not just something we do, but a power humanity is under. We can't educate ourselves out of its grip. We don't overcome it through progressive achievement, nor by moral consistency. The antidote for sin is found in a power outside of ourselves, namely the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ power outside of ourselves as the antidote to sin. So as we, again, just to recap where where we've come from this morning, as we think of our far-reaching sin, the all-encompassing effect of the powers of sin and evil in our world, it's critical that we understand that sin is only rightly understood in relation to God, not in comparison to other people, That understanding keeps us from playing the game of magnifying the sins of others while downplaying the horror of our own. But then again, we bump into an idea that is difficult to grapple with. As we consider sin in relation to God, a righteous God, things begin to look grim. Because a repeated idea we find throughout our Bible is that God is in fact set against sin. We find this in a lot of really dramatic stories, especially throughout the Old Testament. But we even see this in really simple, seemingly insignificant ways in the Gospels. Like the story where Jesus is depicted as weeping at the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Do you remember that story? His friend has died. He's been put in the tomb. And Jesus is weeping there knowing that momentarily he is going to raise Lazarus back to life. So why in the world is he weeping? He knows that there is a good ending to this story. As many scholars have suggested, and I think this is a a great possibility, is that Jesus weeps as a visceral response as he sees the effects of this alien power of sin and evil at work and sees the consequences of that on the ones he loves. And the only thing he can do is weep. 
There are terrible effects of those alien powers, and we can't fix it. We don't have the capacity to fix this. Our frail human attempts at justice, as important as they are in the here and now, as signposts to the future kingdom, our attempts at justice will never fully fix the terrible evils done. We can't repair everything that has been broken, even in our own past. We need something outside of ourselves to fix, to restore, to repair, to reconcile everything that has gone on. Because we can't just brush it under the rug and move on. There has been legitimate pain, brokenness, destroyed lives. Something needs to be done, not punishment, but in order for reconciliation to occur, something has to change, and there is hope. Because what we find the biblical story arguing is that where our justice fails and where our justice is incomplete, God's justice is perfect. God's justice is perfect, and theologically speaking, God's justice and God's righteousness cannot be separated. In fact, the Hebrew words that are translated into English as justice and righteousness, they come from the same Hebrew word group. They always work in tandem. In fact, they can be seen as synonymous. God's justice and God's righteousness. And they're not just nouns that describe the character and the nature of God, but they are also working as verbs. This is not just who God is, but justice and righteousness. This is what God does. Justice and righteousness are God's power at work to make right everything that has gone wrong. And in that, God's justice is not retributive. God's justice is not punitive. It is restorative. God's justice is not about punishing the wrong that we as humans have engaged in. It is about reconciling and making that restoration possible. And when you consider the righteousness, the justice of God in relation to human sin, the idea that something must be done to set this all right, to make that reconciliation possible, to fix everything that is broken. Again, because sin is not just a few naughty actions that I have engaged in, and it might not even be an isolated egregious wrong. It is, as Rutledge says, an infectious disease. An infectious disease, and the spread of that disease must be stopped, and something, God's purposes, enacted in its place. So sin, when we understand it as a power that is active and stands in contradiction to the plans of God, it fractures our relationship with God, not because God can't stand us when we sin, not because God is angry with us when we sin, but because sin necessarily takes us further and further away from the truth, beauty, goodness, and justice of God. So back to our text in Romans 3, as we continue to see Paul's argument develop. In verse 21, he says this, But now the righteousness of God, the righteousness of God, so again, think righteousness, justice of God, has been manifested apart from the law. 
Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So for Paul, there seems to be a connection between what is happening in the cross of Jesus Christ on one hand and the righteousness of God on the other hand, and even the idea of wrath. So just like sin is not a a popular idea in today's day and age, neither is wrath. And and to be sure, I, I want to be very clear on this point. There are certain teachings surrounding wrath that I think are unhelpful, Teaching surrounding wrath that I think are off base and lead us to unhealthy conclusions, but it is a theme throughout our scriptures, and we we have to deal with it. We, We can't just ignore it. I mean, in this argument that Paul's making in the book of Romans, he starts it out in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, by saying this, for the wrath, the wrath of God is revealed. Why? It's revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So what is the result of sin? The result of sin is death, wrath, it is judgment. But as Rutledge insists in this conversation, when we think about the wrath of God, and as we attempt to understand wrath in a healthy manner, we must not think of an enraged, vindictive old man in the sky who is looking for somebody to punish and hoping he can find sin so that he can exert his authority. I think that's unhelpful at best. Because, as Rutledge goes on to say, wrath in the biblical text is used as symbolic language. This is a way that the biblical authors are trying to help us understand, a figurative way of expressing what? Expressing the eternal opposition of God to all that would destroy his good creation. God is opposed to everything that is against his purposes, and I think in some sense that opposition is seen in the cross of Jesus Christ. So God's wrath is not to be understood, in my view, as a tool to punish or destroy his good creation. Quite the contrary. Any notion of wrath is to be understood as an opposition on God's part, to the powers of sin and evil which are intent on destroying his good creation. This seems like a minor distinction, but I think it's massive, and I think the ramifications are huge. Judgment is not to be understood as punishment. It is not punishment, but any notion of judgment is about the removal of impurities because the ultimate goal is not punishing or separating good from evil. The ultimate goal is reconciling and restoring everything that has been broken. It can be difficult, I think, for us to wrap our minds around this because as James Smart noted, God's love, when it is resisted, it feels a lot like wrath. 
but what feels like wrath, he goes on to say, is the, is the love of God, which is seeking the well-being of all of creation. So to sort of wrap this up as we begin to come to the table this morning, because of the problem of sin, because it is pervasive, it is universal, and much more sinister than we can imagine, the remedy for sin must come from outside of humanity. We are simply unable to fix the mess that we have created, but something needs to be done to bring restoration because this is the purposes of God. Evils and injustice need to be made right. Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He bore our sins. He goes on to say, by his wounds, we have been made whole. We are healed. What does this suggest? Well, it suggests that the wounds of Jesus, what Jesus endures on the cross, brings a cure to our sin-sick souls. Next week, we are going to begin looking at some of the images, some of the metaphors used to describe how in the world the cross rights all wrongs and how the crucifixion provides the solution to sin as we think about the language we find of Jesus taking our place on the cross and Christ triumphing victoriously over the death-dealing powers of sin and evil. Kevin, if you all want to come up. As we come to the table this morning, I want to take our minds back to that section from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says this, in Christ, in Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. The plan of God is all about restoration, reconciliation. In Jesus Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. He goes on, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Amen. Would you stand this morning? We're going to join together. Next to our sinful brothers and sisters, gathering around the body and blood of Jesus Christ, whereby we find the means of reconciliation with one another, we find the means of reconciliation with God and with all of creation. I would invite you all, you don't need to be a member of our church, um, we invite you to participate in this celebration. We will make two lines down the center aisle. You'll come forward, you'll take the, the bread and the cup, and the words will be spoken over you. The body of Christ, broken for you. The blood of Christ, shed for you, as Peter said, by his wounds, we are made whole. We are made whole. Would you join me in this confession of sin as we come to the table? It should be on the screen in a moment. Would you join me? Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And now, people of God, hear these words. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in his great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those who sincerely repent and return to him, have mercy upon you. Have mercy upon you. Pardon and deliver you from all your sins. Confirm and strengthen you in all goodness and bring you to everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning?